Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. The documentary film Kusama Infinity was produced by Karen Johnson, who with producing partner Heather Lenz, began working on the film in 2004 when Kusama was still outside popular, popular awareness. And we are so very happy to have them both join us today. Carol, I know you've been working for years with Heather and Karen on their Kusama film, and they won the Roy Dean Grant early on in production. Yes, Claire, I know both of them, and I know of the thousands of hours that they put into this brilliant film, and I'm so happy to have both of you on this show with us. So I want to start with you, Karen, and ask you to tell us a little bit about your history and some of the films you've produced. Thank you, Carol. Thanks for having us. I started my career as a lawyer and went back to film school, actually, to produce films. And it was really a mission-driven career change. I was really interested in producing films, I say, by, for, and about women. Um, So this film definitely meets all of those (laughs) criteria. And Other films along the way that I've worked on, I worked on a film called Double Dare about Hollywood stunt women that um, played at Toronto and won five audience awards and festivals. Um, I I exact produced a film called Wanda the Wonderful about a um, Chickasaw sharpshooting Wild West woman. Um, I'm working right now on a documentary that's being directed and written and produced and shot by women, um, but is all about sound in the cinema called Making Waves, the Art of Cinematic Sound. And the Kusama film, which is now in release, obviously has occupied the better part of my time for many years. For many years, yes, right. This is where tenacity really paid off, I understand. Well, thank you very much, Karen. Um, Heather, tell me something about your background. I know that you earned an MFA in cinema arts at USC and uh, that you have an undergraduate degree in art history and fine arts uh, and uh, that currently you're, you're going to do story consulting. I'm really happy about that. So tell me more about your work on Kusama Infinity. You picked up the idea, and then you found Karen, and the two of you started working on the film, right? That's correct, and um, thanks for having us. And one thing I would like to add is that actually um, your organization was the first one to award us a grant, so you definitely hold a special place in our hearts. I think you know, when you're starting out on a film, getting that first grant is so important because it does kind of give you a stamp of approval. Um, so 
Uh, as you mentioned, my undergraduate degrees are in art history and fine arts. And um, at the time, I was earning those degrees for every maybe thousand male um, artists we learned about. We learned about only, I don't know, a handful of women artists, maybe five, certainly not Kusama. And so I had been tracking her career already for quite a while when I decided to make a film about her. And at the time, I was earning my MFA in cinematic arts at USC, and I started working on a script about her initially because I hoped to make a a biopic with actors. Um, uh, Then, moving forward, I decided to make the documentary in part to allow Kusama to tell her story in her own words while she was still alive and able to do that. And um, part of the motivation, as I mentioned, was was that um, I hadn't been exposed to very many successful women artists. And when I learned about her work, I just really felt that her contributions to the American art world hadn't been properly understood or recognized. And I wanted to help shine a light on her contributions. And in my final semester at USC, I took a pitch class and different producers and Hollywood executives and so forth came in and I actually pitched the film to Karen and um, (laughs) wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to her credit, she really um, embraced the story and she um, felt that it would um, be great content for, um, you know, a demographic of women who maybe didn't get to see very many um, examples of strong characters that, that, you know, strong female characters. And at that time, that was um, a big deal. I, uh, when I would talk to most people about the idea, they, they would shoot it down. And in fact, I pitched the idea to one um, woman who worked for another very powerful woman. And she questioned the idea that I wanted to make a film about a foreign female. So that gives you an (laughs) idea of how people perceive the content at the time and the idea for the film. Oh, my gosh. You just had so many things to overcome to get this film made. Mm -hmm. I have to to say, too, if I can, this is Karen. When Heather pitched me, she did such an amazing pitch. She had um, a picture book of Kusama's art and um, a, a whole registered treatment, which is always good to have, of... Um, her approach to the story, and then she said something like, and Heather, this is what I remember, but you can jump in. She said something like, this woman artist was so important to art history in America. She was as important as the Beatles were to the development of rock and roll, but no one knows who she is. And it was like, oh, my gosh, well, who couldn't be interested in that? That's amazing. So, It's exactly true. That's right. So she really pitched you, and you loved it. And the two of you have been working on this for how many years now? Well, we started working together in 2004 and started shooting in 2004, so it's definitely been a a very long journey. And um, Kusama is now the world's top-selling living female artist, and neither of us could have seen that coming when we started making the film. In fact, we were constantly having to convince people that she was a a worthy and deserving subject. I'm sure. It's amazing, isn't it, how foresighted you both were on this. Mm -hmm. Now, but I thought she is considered the greatest living Japanese artist, right? 
Well, she's she's um, definitely considered. She's definitely the top-selling living female artist in the top world. Top-selling living top- female artist. Wow. Yeah. So not just in Japan, but in the entire world. That's incredible. Um, and I, I hate to ask, but did either of you pick up any of her art early on when you started this film? <laughs> well, I personally, I wish I had because back then it. Um, you know, it's a lot less expensive than it is now. And if I had, then I would be able to fund many, many films because I would be <laughs> wealthy now. But unfortunately, I didn't. Well, oh we both gosh. talked about the fact that if we had invested what we invested in the film and her art, it probably would have been the wiser investment choice. But <laughs> but the film wouldn't exist. So. Yes, and we would not know the, uh, her history and all of her, all of the beautiful shots that you have with her. Uh, it's an amazing film, I have to say, amazing film. And uh, I loved the uh, the time that you went over, Karen, and you got an appointment. I'm sorry, not Karen, but Heather. You went over and you got an appointment with her. How did the two of you? Uh, I'll start with uh, Karen. How did you all set up that? trip because she was reluctant to see most people. How did you get in? Well, I think Heather should talk more about that, but I will just say that um, it was probably not, what we encountered was probably not uncommon for people starting a film because, you know, when you're asking somebody to give up their time and and so forth, especially if they are at all busy, um, it's hard to convince them to to do that for you and ultimately that did happen for us and we did we were able to get funds for it but Heather I'll let you tell that story well one thing about it is um, you know initially I had the idea and I was just very enthusiastic and and naive also and I um, we managed to track down the phone number for her assistance and I had a friend that spoke Japanese uh, Erico Wayno, who who was an, also an associate producer in the film, as time moved on, but uh, she called and and basically announced that I was going to make the film, and I thought that they were just going to be equally as excited as I was. But um, they had very practical questions. They wanted to know which TV station it would be on, or which movie theater it would be <laughs> in, and and what it told me was that they understood the idea of a work for hire, but they didn't understand the idea of a a passion project or an independent film in the way independent filmmakers approach things in America. So there wasn't an understanding of that. And so I, um, you know, realized it was going to be more complicated than, than I thought. And so when Karen and I teamed up, we started filming interviews with Kusama's peers and different curators and, and putting together a pitch tape using photos of her work that we got out of catalogs and so forth. And that enabled us to start applying for grants. And, and as I mentioned, eventually we were awarded a grant from, from the Hart Productions. And then back-to-back, um, we were awarded a grant um, from the Aurora Foundation. And that, pro- that grant was for a dream project that involved travel to Japan. And so as part of that, the head of that organization, Dr. Gishi, she actually teamed me up with a, a tutor and I learned conversational Japanese, and I learned different customs. I learned how low I should bow when I met Kusama. And we just learned different things that were going to be important to us 
from a business perspective in Japan because the the customs are different and there were um, things uh, that we wouldn't have considered in America. Like it was important to bring a gift and, and things like that. And so when I finally did meet Kusama, I was very prepared and I had already done a lot of research um, and I was in her studio and then the elevator door opened and out she came and she immediately shook my hand in the Western custom and she started talking to me in English. Uh, so I didn't really need all that conversational Japanese, um, <laughs> you know, in that instance, but um, I was overprepared. And, and so anyway, we just had a really great time talking. I got to ask her things that I had never um, seen in a book. Back then, there weren't all these catalogs that there are today. So I was able to, you know, ask her things that I was interested in. And, and she was just delightful. And she answered my questions. And at the end, I told her it was the happiest day of my life. And she said, my Mine too, and I think oh, that speaks sweet. to her. Yeah, she, that speaks to her generosity, and and um, you know, she was just very polite to me, and and so it was a very exciting day. Oh, how exciting! You're absolutely right. I can imagine you must have been just high as a kite on that energy. Mm-hmm. That must have carried mm-hmm. you for months. And, and yeah, um, yeah, we were very. Yeah, and we were very lucky. We we were working with a team that we had never met um, that day in Japan, and the cinematographer barely spoke English, and I barely spoke Japanese. We did have um, someone on set to act as a translator, but the cinematographer was just so talented; it really didn't matter if we if we spoke um, each other's language because he knew how to set up a shot and take care of everything and. And so it was really, everything just worked out perfectly. Oh, my gosh. Yes, that was great. Because the footage you have is brilliant. And it's so rare because she's retired now. I think everyone should hear that. And she's not um, doing any more art. And how old is she now? Oh, she is. She actually, she is still making art. She's 89. She's not traveling very much these days, but she's definitely still making art. Yep. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I thought she had stopped yeah. altogether. No, no. Mm-mm. So she's still back at it because uh, I some of the work that she does, particularly the line drawings, you know, they are mm-hmm. so mesmerizing. Her work is, is incredibly unique. Well, all right, let's get into um, Heather. How did you handle the difficult times when people thought you were crazy to make a film about a little known Japanese artist? Did you just have to uh, handle it? How did you handle it? Well, I mean, it certainly wasn't easy, but, uh, you know, we both always believed in the idea. And so when other people rejected it, and obviously we got, we did win a lot of grants over the years, but um, we also received, you know, way more rejections. And, uh, you know, I would just tell myself that every no we received took us closer to a yes, because I kind of felt like it was a numbers game that, you know, out of, you know, we knew we wouldn't win all the grants that we applied for. Um, so we just kept kept on moving forward and hoping for the best. And certainly neither of us anticipated it would be such a long, hard journey as it was. But um, we just kept going forward. Yes, kept staying positive. Well, talking about grants, you were the grant writer, Yes. So we, we both, both wrote grants, yeah. Oh, you wrote both grants. wrote them. 
Yeah, yeah. many many grants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we wrote, to... in fact, several NEH grants. Unfortunately, we never got that. That being one of the biggest grants you can get, but we, but we wrote many grants, and some of them look like doctoral dissertations. <laughs> right. Yes. It's a shame. Yeah, I think it's a shame because. Um, in making a film, you spend so much time on these grant applications. And one organization wants you to describe the project in, you know, a thousand words, and someone wants you to describe it in 250 words, and you're kind of just like reworking and reworking this content. And um, I think there surely should be a more efficient way to do that. But um, anyway, <laughs> just how it goes. Right. They're trying to standardize the grant applications now. Have have you heard about that? We yeah, did start noticing that towards the end, yeah, that there was starting to be some standards. And that's yeah. welcome, believe me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, we all wanted to know about that one. Well, um let's get into um uh, more about uh, what you learned that you can share with other filmmakers. Because, uh, so let's start with Karen. Because as a female producer, uh, did you have a lot of problems you had to overcome with the industry that you could share with us? Well, I don't know that I'd say. I mean, frankly, until the film was completed, the industry wasn't really involved or interested in it. So. That's the number one problem, as you know, it's with getting a lot of press right now is that women's stories just aren't being told and aren't being, you know, as as broadly available um, for funding either. So, you know, that was the biggest battle with the industry. But in terms of grants, I mean, I think that, that one thing to learn is to find where your particular project might have a special appeal. And we had what was a disadvantage in one respect, as Heather was talking about, it being about a, quote, foreign female. That foreign female was Japanese. And for us, in terms of getting grants, it turned out that that was an important plus because there are organizations like the Japan Foundation, the U.S.-Japan Foundation, the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission, some of these organizations that got behind us specifically because it was about a Japanese person. Um, and, of course, women in, the Women in Film Foundation, which got behind us because it was about a woman, I, or we were women filmmakers, I'm not sure exactly which. But, um, you know, so I guess finding what special element you might have and plotting your strategy according to that you know, we really were always researching and trying to find other organizations and there were and companies and there were a lot that we applied to that we didn't get that were specifically targeted because of the Japanese connection, but definitely a lot of the ones we got that came on board it was because of that. Well that's excellent. This is so important. I agree with you that your film has to fit their criteria. This seems to be the number one rejection for most uh, most grantors are rejecting people because their films don't fit the criteria. So doing all that work up front only saves you uh, work, knowing that your film is a perfect fit, right? Going in that way, you feel much more empowered. Right. And I think also another thing is trying to focus on the various topical 
elements in your film that maybe you can single out and emphasize for a particular funder that might not seem apparent at first, but you can build them up in a specific grant application. I think that is very important because I read about a thousand grants or a thousand <laughs> proposals a year between the accounting of the you know sponsorships and the uh, applications for fiscal sponsorship and the grants and friends who just want me to look at their projects and um, when you can single out one area of your film and and uh, show it to me with your words. Give me a visually written description of some area that I like or that is compelling, and then you've sold me, you know, because I can then see that or repeat it to my judges, and that works. It, you're so right. You have to get to the heart of the film and put it on paper. Well, Heather, as a director and a producer, tell us what you learned that you could share with other filmmakers. Well, something I would um, suggest for first-time filmmakers is to pick a logistically simple project, which is, of course, not what I did. Um, I picked (laughs) a very complicated project, and um, sometimes I like to um, just, um, for the sake of illustrating this, compare it to a wonderful documentary called Spellbound um, about the spelling bee. And if you compare the Kusama film to that, just from a logistical standpoint, we had to deal with international travel, which is quite expensive. Those filmmakers did not. Um, We had to deal with foreign language, um, which meant that we needed to have a translator on set. Then we needed to have our interviews not only transcribed, but translated. Then we needed to look for editors that were bilingual, which narrows the playing field and and adds complexity. And and all of of those language issues um, added expense. Um, you know, whereas with Spellbound, everyone was speaking English. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a story that was unfolding over time and changing and evolving, which affected the ending. Um, whereas with um, a competition like that, someone will win and someone will lose. And it will happen in, you know, a limited time period. And then that will affect your ending. Um, and so the bottom line is, I think if you can make your first uh, feature film and keep it, just pick something logistically uh, simple, it, that will only help you because then you'll have your name out there. You'll have your calling card, so to speak, as opposed to working on something that's very, very complicated, that takes a very long time. And, um, you know, it, 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 it can really hold you back career-wise because, um you know, you don't have that finished work. So that's something I would really suggest to people um, to consider that maybe if you have a a challenging project to make that's going to be expensive or just extra complicated, maybe that should be your second film, not your first film, or, or maybe you should be working on that other more logistically simple film at the same time. And again, this is in no way, um, and in no way diminishes um, the skill level of, like, for example, Spellbound is an amazing film. It was nominated for an Academy Award. and But I really look at, at um, you know, just the strategy of that. I think it's it's just a great idea to just pick something that's going to be 
um, you know, a little little less complicated than what we were up against. <laughs> right. That's very good advice, yeah, because you must, that probably added another 30% to your budget for the just adding that language in mm-hmm. on the set and in the transcription and in the everything. Right. Well, and I think also the international travel element, I mean, honestly, I think they it added <laughs> I would guess it probably would have doubled the budget if yeah. you put all the factors related to what and we were looking. Is, because our film took so long to make, um, editing software and camera equipment changed along the way, and that affected a number of things that added expense. Because, like for example, the editing software we started with, you know, it no longer even exists, and um, <laughs> the frame rate changed, and different things, and. And at the end, we had to do a very, very expensive frame rate conversion. And, um, uh, you know, these things just add expense. But if you can uh, move at a more rapid pace, then um, these, are, these are things you won't have to, to, to deal with and suffer through like we did. Right. Well, um, I know that you had several edits of the film before mm-hmm. you decided which one to use. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us what you learned in this editing process. I'd like to hear both of you give me your opinion. So you want to start, Heather? Well, sure. I mean, I think um, one thing, of course, that's important is to figure out how to convey your story in a way that's clear and easy to understand. And test screenings are very important because you do want to make sure that the audience is responding in the way that you want them to. So you you hope that they're going to be laughing in the right place or crying in the right place or whatever it is. And and the only way to really figure that out is to do test screenings and and have people with fresh eyes in there looking at it. And... um, you know, we were very fortunate. We had Kate Amend involved as a consulting editor, and she's, you know, really brilliant and, and had some great suggestions. And But it is also true that, you know, because, because the story took so long to make, um, you know, things evolved over time. Like, initially, I had uh, anticipated the halfway point of the film being the Venice Biennale in the 1960s where Kusama goes there and she's not invited. It's a very prestigious event and she crashes it and sets up her mirror ball installation on the lawn. And, um, and then I had imagined the ending point to be the Venice Biennale in the 1990s where she is invited to represent Japan. And I thought that would just be, a, a, you know, structurally that made sense. And part of the reason I zeroed in on the, on the Venice Biennale as the halfway point was because up until then Kusama is kind of playing by the rules and she's trying to get her work into the galleries in the conventional way. And when she goes to the Venice Biennale, she's really taking matters into her own hands and she's no longer allowing herself to be restricted by this gallery system and be told when and where to show her art. Um, but as time went by, the Venice Biennale that I envisioned for the ending, I mean, no longer made sense because that happened um, quite a while ago. And um, But what I didn't want to do was just um, 
was just have the ending be whatever Kusama was doing last month or last week because she is so prolific and she's always doing some other interesting thing. But I knew that if that was how we ended the film, it would just instantly be out of date. So it was important to me to try to figure out something that would hold up. And so what I zeroed in on was, the idea of her finally being accepted in her hometown that had that had previously rejected her, as you know, a lot of people who are ahead of their time are are rejected. So, anyway, I guess um, you know it was still uh, um, you know a, a kind of a celebratory ending, but um, but bittersweet because it did take her so long to get that attention. So I guess um, those are some of my well, thoughts on the editing, but. But uh, definitely, just a, great. Yeah, definitely getting the right person is key. I mean, our the person who took us to the finish line was a very talented editor, Keda Ideno, and and part of his uh, secret weapon was that he was bilingual and he was able to really access the content and the material in the way that previous editors had not been able to because, you know, just because you have something translated and you read it on the page, you know, you, you don't have an idea of um, how it's resonating unless you really speak the language and you understand, um, you know, did they say it in a low-energy way or did they say it in a way that, uh, you know, is compassionate or, you know, whatever the thing is that's going to, you know, bring the correct emotion to the to the senior cutting. Yes. Well, you were very lucky to get some of the best editors. Well done. Well, uh, Karen, what did you learn during this uh, edit process that you could share with other filmmakers? Well, I would say one thing, definitely having Kata get involved, our editor at the end who was bilingual, was so important. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I... You know, I, I think that was key and probably something that should have happened earlier because what happened is even though things were translated and cut, they were cut off of transcripts. And, in fact, um, when you translate a language like Japanese, the order of speaking is different and things like that. So what he pointed out to us was that when an English language editor cut it, sometimes they thought they were cutting it a certain way, but it really wasn't that way when you could understand the Japanese. So I thought that was a really interesting point that hadn't fully been understood before that. Um, and also I think that a big, a big important point is that there really can't be too many chefs in that kitchen. That is a place <laughs> where a director needs to be really powerful and, you know, tell their story the way they envisioned it. And Heather's always had a strong vision for this film from the beginning. I think it's always been a hero's journey film. And even though the sort of looping points for that hero's journey might have evolved a little bit, it was always a hero's journey. And um, so anyway, I think that that's key is having, you know, a director with a strong vision having um, people around the director who support that vision and respect it. Yeah, and I also want to say that one of the best things about working with Karen was that she gave me feedback, but she also gave me the space to to be the director, and she did respect my vision. And, um, you know, as a woman in this business, that's not always the case, and it's 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 tough. So, you know, you want to have a team that's, 
that that appreciates you know what you what you have to bring to the table and and is able to you know listen and and um and you know sometimes be exposed to parts of the story they didn't know about i mean of course over the years i had you know one thing i had was the benefit of time to do just extensive research and i do think it's fair to say i have phd level knowledge of kusama um, you know, not only did I interview all of the top experts on Kusama, but I did my own research. And I did uh, get to spend about a month in her archives, going through not only all of her photos, but her letters, her calendars, her receipts, all, all sorts of things. And then in addition, we interviewed, you know, other people that knew her and heard their side of different stories and, and things like that. So I just really had a wealth information to draw from. You must have tons of good footage that you didn't use in that film. What are you going to do with that? Well, I don't know. That remains to be seen. But, of course, to put it together, to edit it, would cost money, which, of course, we don't have any surplus of funds right now. So I don't know that we have any immediate plans. But, you, you know, you never know what the future holds. So we'll we'll see. Because it's right. very valuable. It's valuable. I'll tell you that. Well, <clears throat> oh, I do have one other thing I want to point out just as a tip to people starting a documentary. If it's about a subject like ours who was old, older when we started, and we were lucky because we got some of her peers from the 60s early on and interviewed them, and we lost some of those people over the course of making the documentary, but we had the footage of them to include because we had gotten them early. So I guess that was kind of a, you know, a little bit of luck, but I think it's, it's definitely a planning point for people if they're looking at a character or a situation that involves people who might not be around. Get them, get them right away. Oh, very yeah, smart, because the, the average... Uh, Warshawski says that it takes average six years. You have to plan on that to make a doc. So that is very good advice. Yeah, actually three of the people in our documentary are no longer with us. So it's wow. it's sad, you know. And we definitely, there were also people we wanted to interview that, that passed away during the making of the film. So one thing I can say for sure, though, is that I'm just so happy that Kusama has lived to see this well-deserved recognition. And, you know, the film got completed while she was still alive. So that's something we're both very happy about. Have you gotten any feedback from her? Uh, no, on well, the film. Mm-hmm. The only feedback I ever got from her was include more new art, include more new art. You know, because she's so prolific <laughs> and she she's always making something new that's interesting. And in fact, I was just in London and I got to see her latest mirror room at Victoria Miro Gallery. And I must say, it is my new favorite mirror room. So I am really? disappointed it's not in the film, but. At the end of the day, you know, you, you have to, at some point, you have to just say enough, you know, I, I, I got the story, maybe, you know, it's not exactly, exactly, you know, everything I wished it could be, but it's, it's like I did the best I could with the resources I had, and, you know, you can't just keep going forever. We, I think, as it is, we did quite a marathon journey on the film, so... You know, I'm glad it's done, and and sure, it's it's hurts a little to see something like that and wish it could be in the film, but that's just how it goes. 
Right. Heather and right. I did at one time joke about making the 24-hour Kusama movie. <laughs> yes, I did. I said that at Sundance. I said we could have had the first 24-hour documentary. We have so much footage, you know. I guess it would be like sort of a homage to Warhol doing those super yes. long movies. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. So, but, oh. you know, I think with a film, there's always, with a documentary, there's always going to be interesting stuff that you cut out. And there's a saying that uh, filming is like shopping and editing is like cleaning your closet. And, you know, you may have wonderful pieces in your closet that uh, are beautiful and, and you, you know, you wish they fit properly, but they just don't fit anymore. And, and for the better, you know, telling of the story you just have to let some of these things go and and so we did have to let go of things that that were good but um you know that's just that's just part of making a film right exactly Uh, that's what this man in new zealand said to me get rid of your darlings and i said what does that Mm -hmm. mean he said your very favorite stuff that you love People are mm-hmm. not going to understand because they weren't there. They weren't on the set. Mm-hmm. And when they mm-hmm. look at what something means to you, it won't mean that to mm-hmm. them. So that's the first thing he said. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, Karen, now that you, you've signed with a distributor, what can you share with us that filmmakers should do when they are choosing a distributor? Well, I think first in terms of finding a distributor, I would recommend that people participate in the markets that are available where they can have their work seen um, in advance of of completing it. Like we did um, Destination Rendezvous at Hot Docs. Heather actually did the – Heather, what was the The name of the program that – the Film Independent um, Documentary Fellowship. Yeah, the Film Independent Documentary Fellowship Program. Um, so those kinds of things, I think, are really important to start getting the word out about your film so that it is known in the filmmaking community and people know that it's coming up to even watch for it. And then when you start getting approached by people who are interested in your film, I think it's always important to try to find out as much as you can about who those people are and who they've worked with and talk to the people that they've worked with and find out how the relationship was and, um, you know, get recommendations and definitely look at other, other work that they've done. Right. And yes. another yeah, and another thing I would say in terms of um, asking around about people, I would really try to ask specific questions and don't make assumptions. Like, for example, just because someone has an executive producer credit, you know, they may or may not have actually contributed funding, you know. Um, so you really need to find out, um, you know, what what they did. And I think when you take on new business partners, it's really important to have a, a good lawyer and to sell out, um, you know, your fees and credits are based on performing certain tasks and, and uh, so, you know, and if certain things aren't, aren't completed, then you need to definitely have it in writing that, um, you know, those credits and, and fees aren't going to be, um, you know, given if, if the person didn't do, the, didn't do the work. So you need to really be careful about those things. 
Yeah, lawyers, uh, a lawyer is very important, someone who knows their stuff, uh, particularly when you're doing the distribution agreement, because one word here or there or left out means everything. So, Mm -hmm. yes. Well, um, so when you say uh, you're talking about the uh, hot dogs that you went to, uh, you went there, uh, Heather? To hot dogs? No, no, I went to Dos Angeles Rendezvous. Yes. Yeah. And so what was it? You were just pitching your project there? And you were yeah, you apply. It? It's a program that they have for films that are in a rough cut stage. And you apply with your rough cut. And they choose, I don't know how many films that get to participate. I'd say maybe 50 or so are participating in any given year. And they bring you in and they have tables set up with distributor reps and sales agents and other producers who are looking for projects and funders and so forth. And and they match you based – oh, I think they express interest in you, and then you get to sit down and pitch them for five minutes or ten minutes, whatever the program allows. And I think, Heather, didn't you do that at um, – did you do that at IDA or I somewhere else as well? Well, gosh, I, yeah, I did at IDA once meet um, some people, but boy, it's been so long now. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember all the details. So, yeah. But definitely, we were both out with the with the project, and so that there was an awareness of it for a number of years in the in the filmmaking community. And as Kusama became more known, then were, were, is that what what shifted the tide here? When uh, she hit stardom, is that what shifted it? Well, well I think Heather tells a, makes a great story about that, which is that really, you know, she started out to bring recognition to Kusama, and it kind of flipped, and Kusama brought recognition to the film, <laughs> so by being a star, by becoming an art star, so. You know, all boats around her rose as a result. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's interesting. Like, so for so long, I feel like just like Kusama was ahead of um, her time and her work wasn't really appreciated or recognized. That's how it felt for us. And um, and all of a sudden this year, you know, the film went to Sundance and uh, there were several documentaries about strong older women, which really blew my mind after so long struggling to make, you know, a film about a strong older woman, which is, you know, a, a demographic often neglected in, in films. And, um, but if you look at those films like RBG or Seeing All Red or Joan Jett, they are about very accomplished women. And so, you know, again, just to reiterate, when we started making the film, Kusama didn't have that kind of fame. And so even though we both believed in the story and the strength of her art and um, and so forth, that didn't mean other people could appreciate, um, you know, the, the reasons we wanted to tell the story. And, and if someone is famous, of course, they kind of already have the seal of approval, you know, from society. Mm-hmm. And, and people know that, oh, there's going to be a market for this because so many people already support this person's work or their career or, you know, our fans and that type of thing. So, I mean, I'm certainly very, very happy that there is more awareness now about on-screen diversity, and I really hope that these 
these documentaries that have come out recently about strong older women. I hope that will translate into more parts for older women actresses in Hollywood and, and um, you know, just more diversity in general. I mean, again, um, when I started the film and I had people, you know, question the fact that I wanted to make a film about a foreign female, it just, it was so shocking to me because, um, I just never really personally had to deal with that kind of racism before, but <laughs> I know as I've gotten immersed in the project and um, during the making of the film, by the way, I married into a Japanese family and my husband really explained to me, you know, as a kid watching Star Trek reruns, um, seeing um, an Asian character on screen on TV, it was a big, big deal. And so that's something I really didn't appreciate when I started working on the film. And But over time, I've definitely become more sensitive, and I think things are changing. I mean, right now, of course, in theaters, there's that film Crazy Rich Asians with an all-Asian cast, and I think you know, a lot of people are excited about about that, So and rightfully so. So I'm, I'm really glad to see, you know, those kind of changes happening and, and certainly for anyone that appreciates on-screen diversity, I do hope they'll go see the film. And um, the film is still playing theatrically in L.A. and other areas. And there's more information at our website for anyone in the U.S. You can find out about screenings at kusamamovie.com. And for anyone overseas, it's kusamadocumentary.com has that information. So I hope people will, will go out and see it. Oh, I do, too. It's really an, a wonderful film. Well, um, Karen, tell us uh, what's next with the distribution. Where does it go after theaters? Karen, go, are you there? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had a little glitch there. It will go through regular ancillary you know, distribution through all the various markets from um, on-demand to streaming. Um, so that's what's ahead, but actually it'll be playing in theaters in different cities. Uh, the most recent schedule I saw was through the end of the year, but of course that's going to be rolling out in different cities. And then um, we'll be looking, you know, later in the year towards um, the on-demand and, and digital, probably the beginning of next year. And uh, educational, is that part of it? Oh, I'm sure there will be educational use of this film. I think it's going to be so important in art history, and um, you know there are just a number of applications for it. And we'll, you know, it's a goal of ours to do some outreach to help make that happen. Yeah, and actually next February it's going to screen at MoMA as part of the um, CAA conference, which is the College Art Association. And so that's an event where there will be a lot of college professors and different art insiders, and so hopefully that will also help expose the film to a wider audience of people that can share it with their students and so forth. Oh, that's wonderful. What a great achievement. You two should be very proud of what you've done. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Carol. We're definitely proud of the film. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, to, it's very successful. Uh, I think that 
you should be commended for all the time and your tenacity, for your determination, your fortitude, because no matter what happened, you both had the completion of the film in your mind and your vision for success, and it really paid off. So thank you very much. I really appreciate all the guidance and information that you've shared with filmmakers today. And And I just want to say one more thing. I just want to say, you know, hats off to Magnolia Pictures for distributing the film and other films like it. They also distributed RBG. And so, you know, those kinds of distributors are so important. Oh, and also, and and I'll likewise give a shout out to Dog Wolf, who's handling it um, overseas. I was just in London for the UK premiere. So they also handle a lot of, um, you know, wonderful progressive documentaries. And our release in Japan hasn't happened yet. Uh, that looks like it'll be spring next year. So um, we're, you know, we're looking forward to the film getting out to the world and hoping, you know, hoping people enjoy it. And um, fortunately, we have been getting positive feedback. And I'm always happy when young art history students tell me it filled in some gaps for them and sometimes there's young Asian women that approach me after Q&As and their daughters are with them who are you know sometimes they look like they're eight or nine years old and they tell me how how happy they are to have a film like this that helps um, you know portray an Asian woman as a strong character and which goes against stereotype and and so we're both obviously very pleased that it's having that kind of impact. Oh, yes, you should be. That's great. Well, and I want to say I know, uh, Heather, that you're interested in doing story consulting work for documentary filmmakers. So I want everyone to know that to reach you, they can contact me through info at fromtheheartproductions.com, Carol Dean, and I will get them connected to you. Well, I hope that you both have wonderful ideas for the future and that your plans are, you've got more exciting things planned for yourselves, right? Yeah, I think Karen's really immersed in a lot of other things. Last night I looked at my list of film ideas and and realized my list of potential documentaries I'd like to make exceeded 20. (laughs) So I don't know exactly what my future holds, but I certainly have no shortage of ideas. I wish I could be like the next Sheila Nevins and have my hands in a lot of things at once because, you know, it took so long to make this. It's, It's exciting, but I'm also certainly creatively frustrated in some ways because you know I have so many other ideas I I I wish I could make that I had the resources to make so so we'll see what's what's next but um Karen certainly she's just finishing another film so that's exciting the the sound film it is Mm -hmm. yeah sound making waves the art of cinematic sound that's coming out soon it's we're just finishing it. We're just in the very end of post production. So yes, and we're applying starting to apply to festivals. So hopefully it will wow. be screening somewhere soon. Oh, isn't that exciting? That's great. That yeah. that uh Kickstarter campaign you ran was superb. I yes. Ah, oh, what a trailer you had. It was unbelievably good. Well done. Well, thanks, Carol, and thanks for being, you know, our fiscal sponsor and supporting it as well. 
Oh, you're so welcome. Yeah, I'm I'm really proud to hear how far you've come with that. You're yeah, and all you need now is so you're gonna be taking that around to pitch festivals too, I guess, when you're finished, right? Yes, we are, for sure. Great. Okay. Well thank you both for a lovely conversation and tons of information and we just appreciate what you're doing and how much effort you put into bringing Kusama and creating such an important historical documentary for all of us. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you, Carol, for everything you do for independent film. Oh, how kind. You're so welcome. And, Claire, we really appreciate your support and your help with the show, and so take care. Oh, thank okay. you. All right. Thank you both. Thanks, everybody. Okay. All Bye. right. Thank you both, Heron, Heather and Karen, and take good care, everyone. And to our listeners, I want to tell you how grateful we are for the donations you've given at FromTheHeartProductions.com to support our podcast. Carol and I sincerely thank you, and we'd love to hear from you with your ideas for more shows. What are some topics that you would like have? to have covered, what are some interviews that you would like to hear. We're always open to your feedback, so just let us know, and please join us next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>